The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Why the German elections will be a gripping race as the nation's parties jockey for control. And storied retailer Toys R Us may have filed for bankruptcy, but its private equity owners aren't at a total loss. These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba. I'm your sole host this week as Anthony Curry is traveling on business. So first, we're going to turn to Europe. Germans are going to the polls on September 24th. Angela Merkel's party, the Christian Democratic Union, is on track to rack up the largest percentage of votes securing a fourth term for Merkel as the country's chancellor. But these are uncertain political times borne out by Great Britain's preparation to leave the European Union and the election of U.S. President Donald Trump. Germany is no exception. Joining me on the line from London is Breaking Views correspondent Olaf Storbeck. Welcome, Olaf. Hi there. Um, So you've been following this pretty closely. And um, even though Merkel's party is expected to win, it's likely that her party is going to need a coalition to basically push everything through. So why don't you take us through the dynamics of why this is necessary? And, you know, also Germany is uh, interesting in terms of the the shorthand that it uses for its parties in terms of, you know, affixing colors to each party. So why don't you kind of explain to us what, what's going on? Yes, so in Germany, Germany has a parliamentary system um, and a system of proportional representation in parliament. Um, so every vote counts um, and um, you need about well at least 50% of the seats in the Bundestag to vote in the new chancellor. And so the Christian Democratic Union, they're expected to get how much? Like what, what's the polling in terms of percentage? The Christian Democratic Union at the moment and its Bavarian sister party together, they, they are they are polling at around 38 percent, 36 to 38 percent of the vote, um, and um, so it will be by, by far the largest party. So the, sec- the second largest party, the Social Democrats, are trading them by about 15 percentage points. Okay. Um, so which means basically nobody can can create a government without uh, uh, involving the CDU, no other party, um, but. Um, well, she still needs a, um, a coalition to get a parliamentary majority to be voted in next chancellor. Okay, so right now what, what it could theoretically be happening is a bunch of horse trading among various parties. Is that correct? Yes. So the, the, we, we have this um, funny habit of color coding um, the parties and then the potential coalitions. So the, the Christian Democrats are black, the Social Democrats are red. Then there's the FDP, which is a pro-business uh, open market uh, party, which is yellow. The Greens, which are obviously green, and, and then the other parties um, don't, don't really matter in the, in the, in, in, in the relevant coalition scenarios. Um, so currently we have um, a, a black-red uh, coalition, or also called Grand Coalition, because it involves the, the two biggest parties, the Conservatives and the Social Democrats. But that's always kind of seen as a last resort. So if there are other options, parties tend to look at them first. Um, so, um, and the most natural option would be um, a coalition between the Conservatives and the FDP, this pro-business uh, open market party, which isn't uh, represented in Parliament right now because they crashed out of it last last time. Um, but they are now at, seen at about 10, 11% of, of the vote. And it, 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 it's going to be a really close call if they and the Conservatives will have a majority of seats or not. That, that's 
kind of going to be the most exciting and and gripping question on election night actually because if um, the conservatives and the free democrats have a, a majority it's all but certain that they will also form a coalition and and then vote in the next chancellor okay so so let's let, take us back a little bit here in terms of i mean to me germany seems one of the most stable countries in terms of the political situation uh, again compared to what's happening in great britain and you know even here in the united states i mean there's a lot of uh, uh, political, you know, fighting going on right now, um, but but you're kind of making the case that, that that even though it seems like the 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 CDU is going to lock this up, that that all the the different outcomes could have you know pitch the country in very different ways and put it in very different directions. So what is the if you will scariest <laughs> outcome that can happen on Sunday or or thereafter when they're trying to you know figure out who's going to join up with who yeah so the the biggest risk particularly from a from a kind of european and eurozone perspective is probably this black yellow coalition between the conservatives and the free democrats because the free democrats over the last 4 years when they were not represented in parliament, um, developed some really um, well, relatively radical ideas in terms of how to deal with the eurozone and um, how to move forward in terms of fiscal policy. And, 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 and what are some of those ideas? Do they want to kick Greece so, out of the, the yeah, currency? Yeah. So, so for instance, for instance, the party leader Christian Lindner has repeatedly said in open that he wants to kick Greece out of the euro. They are dead against further bailouts for Greece and and, and would surely be very reluctant to do other bailouts. They've recently said that any kind of fiscal transfer across the uh, European Union, uh, across the currency union, will be a red line for entering any coalition. So all these ideas of Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, having a grand bargain and and do eurozone uh, reform uh, and and less austere fiscal policies would be at least much harder for Merkel to to basically sell to her domestic um, partners. in, in, in oh, overall, one still has to keep in mind that the, the Chancellor is the one who kind of calls the shots in, in Germany according to the Constitution. So it, it's basically her deciding what where, where the whole thing is going. But the, 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 the Free Democrats then, in theory, could 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 crash could well at least pull out of the coalition and um, and th- th- there's a bit of a risk that, that that you will have some nasty surprises in in terms of of the stability of a government. But so take me back here with, with Merkel. Um, you you mentioned that she has a lot at her uh, disposal, mm. I guess, in terms of um, leading the country. But how popular is she at the moment? And in theory, how 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 powerful is she mm. in the country and and also in the EU? Well, I mean in. In the country, it's, it, she's really uh, divisive. She's she's become a divisive figure because of her refugee policy. So there's a, a vocal but well still small majority who absolutely hate her and who mess up every kind of election um, rally she she goes and has a speech. There are there are people trying to to to, to boo her, trying to kind of um, ruin the um, the speech in a way which has rarely been seen before in, in German politics. Um, um, but on the other hand, if you look at the at the support for her party, uh, she was really faring badly um, in, 20, in, in in the second half of 2015 and, uh, and, and in 2016 when when the CDU had really kind of plummeted in the polls. But she, they recovered remarkably and now are almost back. Well, in, not in striking distance to their last results.
result where they got 42.5 or 41.5 percent, so about 40 percent. Now they are close back to 40, which is, is a remarkable recovery. So the overall support for her may probably also because of the lack of alternatives and the, the fact that the social democratic uh, challenger Martin Schulz is just not a convincing figure um, is, is really large and, and within her own party she's still very kind of powerful and, and if, if she manages to to get 36-38% um, this will mean she, she has quite a strong role within her own party. Um, because, I mean, it was her who won the election, basically. I mean, it was her who, who got the party into crisis, into a popularity crisis during to the refugee, um, the, the peak of the refugee crisis, but they've really re- recovered now. Okay, Olaf, before we let you go, what happens if there is no immediate coalition formed uh, among the parties? Well, the big question is, is will they have a majority of seats among the Conservatives and the Free Democrats? If that not the case on Monday night, then things really get interesting and, it, and, and building, uh, creating a new government will be probably quite a rocky process. It will be anyway, but even more rocky than uh, than otherwise. So um, one option would be to, to just go have another go at the grand coalition between the Conservatives and the Social Democrats. It's a, quite an open question if the Social, Social Democrats would do it again, because they fared really bad in the, in the, after the last grand coalition. Now they, they are having they are in for their worst result in, in many, many years, potentially even the worst result since 1887. Um, if you if you ex- exclude the, the the 1933 poll, which was uh, election, which was already kind of rigged on and influenced by the Nazis, so this could really be a historic defeat for the Social Democrats. And in that case, it, it, it's quite likely that they say, well, we we won't we don't do it again. And and then it's it's quite a complicated thing because if the, it's unlikely that the CDU and the Greens uh, have a majority, and then the only option left would be a coalition between the Conservatives, the Greens, and the Free Democrats. The Greens have already said that they don't want to do this because they have really different views on climate change and also on European integration, on fiscal policy. So um, this would be then a really, really difficult situation. In theory, Merkel could try to, to rule with a minority government and use kind of fluctuating different majorities. Um, but then I think at least the idea that Germany has a lot of political stability is something we, we have to revisit. And, and things could really get interesting then. Okay, Olaf, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Retailer Toys R Us filed for Chapter 11 after getting crushed by more than $5 billion in debt and relentless competition from Amazon. But there's more to this story. Joining us to explain why is my colleague Lauren Silva Laughlin dialing in from Dallas. Welcome back, Lauren. Hello. So, Lauren, let's talk about Toys R Us. Um, I guess this isn't too much of a surprise. It's been struggling for a long time. Um, It's yet another uh, retailer that has uh, succumbed to relentless pressures, mostly from e-commerce and Amazon, and but, but there are a lot of other forces at play. But you were looking into this, and you kind of took an, another angle. Um, their owners are private equity players. Why don't you kind of explain the background of Toys R Us history over, the say, the past 12 years, um, kind of how they got to this point, and, you know, why their owners aren't exactly wiped out? 
Well, they, as you said, they took the company private in 2005. And this is uh, KKR. Yeah, KKR Bank Capital and real estate company Vornado. Um, and we have to sort of transport ourselves back to a completely different day and age when they bought this company. Um, you know, the retail sector was challenged in some ways, but nowhere near what it's like now. And, um, and obviously debt was, you know, flowing freely at the time. They had a bunch of debt on the company. Um, since then, the, the company has um, had declining revenue. And um, starting in 2012, it's, its business started to look worse. Um, but And for several years, you know, people have been sort of wondering when and why Toys R Us would go bankrupt. Um, there's one thing I think that's unique about this deal. So it's not unusual that retailers are struggling. It's not unusual that private equity firms, you know, extract fees along the way. What is unusual about Toys R Us is that it's been private for 12 years. And, you know, all this time, the private equity firms have been just taking little bits and pieces from the company for various things. And that's, in the end, added up to be quite a lot of money. Yeah, so you looked at this. So let's go back for a second here. Um, KKR, Bain Capital, and and Vornado, they uh, bought Toys R Us. It was for $6.6 billion. That was in uh, 12 years ago. Is that that correct? Yes, in 2005, about $6.6 billion. And they filed for bankruptcy yesterday more than $5 billion of debt on their balance sheet, roughly as much as they had when they bought the company. Uh, they put um, put a billion three in themselves. Okay, so like, like you said, management fees, which actually kind of surprised me um, that private equity, this is a typical thing for them, right? That they come in, they'll buy a company, they'll set it up, they'll put in their people, but then what they do on top of it is they, they take a management fee. Why don't you explain a little bit about how this works before we kind of get into the specifics of yeah, what happened so- with Toys R Us? So there are several fees that private equity firms often take. One is what they call an advisory fee. Um, It's sort of a nebulous kind of consulting fee that they extract from the company simply for being there. Um, And then there's another fee that they take called a transaction fee. This is any time a company does a refinancing or sells an asset. Again, it's sort of a, a nebulous kind of consulting fee that they take. These are all disclosed. They're not unusual for, you know, it's not something that KKR and Bain do. It's, it's industry, it's an industry-wide practice. Um, so we kind of, we sort of totted up those fees and those are sort of separate from the other kind of payments that we looked at. We also included um, the interest payments, for example. Um, KKR and Bain owned some debt of the company and um, they were taking interest payments. Vornado, which is a real estate owner, um, owned some of Toys R Us properties, and they were taking lease payments. And um, and then there were the portfolio companies that were part of Bain that provided services for Toys R Us. And over the last couple of years, and Toys R Us paid um, fees to those companies as well. Um, and so it was really just to illustrate how private equity firms can continue to make money even when you know an asset is losing value. So when you total this all up, what what, what was the uh, what was the big number that that you got to once they you know over the over the twelve years? So the to- yeah the total number we got was six hundred million. So that's essentially all the money. You're fairly close. Um, all the money that. Um, 
KKR Bain and Vornado took from Toys R Us. That's in fees and commissions, um, you know, interest, leases, payments for normal course of business. If you look at just the fees, for example, um, so just those transaction and advisory fees that I was talking about, the sort of money that they make just for being around, you get something in the neighborhood of, you know, 360 or so million dollars. Um, and uh, a little bit more. Um, and uh, and if you kind of compare that to where Toys R Us bonds are trading, um, it's roughly the same as some of its sort of more junior levels of debt. Um, as an equity holder, so as an equity holder, they're they're going to be wiped out most likely. Um, but really, what their recovery has been, um, just looking at those fees, is something a bit more. So also, I don't know if you looked at this, did they get dividends on top of this or, or did they not? In this case, they did not. So that's kind of one of the more egregious practices that people like to pick on. Um, as these companies go bankrupt, you can look back for a number of years and um, and see, you know, sometimes the private equity firms pay themselves a huge amount of money and then, um, and then the company ends up going bankrupt. Um, that didn't happen in that case, in this case, which is in some ways sort of amazing that they were able to... Um, you know, the fees that they took were able to add up to so much, even though it didn't really come in one sort of lump sum dividend payment. Yeah, I mean, 600 million over over 12 years, when you consider where this company is now headed, or is basically walked in the door to bankruptcy court, um, is astonishing in a lot of ways. I mean, that's, 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 that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. The other thing I, I, I looked at was, um, so um, it's funny, Jeff Jeff Goldfarb um, wrote a piece in 2015 essentially saying that the company was worth less than its debt. And since 2015, they took another $70 million out of the company. So it, it shows why they actually have a financial incentive to keep these companies out of bankruptcy and take these, these fees and leases and interest payments for as long as they possibly can to help recoup at least something, even if they know that their equity stake is worthless. Between 2012 and 2014, when the company was already starting to struggle, the um, the company did a series of refinancings. They did a, they took on a bunch of sort of new debt, repaid old debt. Every single time they did one of these loans, the private equity firms would take a million dollars here, four million dollars there. In one case, they took about nineteen million dollars for doing a new new term loan. Over those three years, those fees added up to roughly seventy million. Um, so it, it's funny. It's not really one big lump payment, but over the course of 12 years, it's quite a lot of money. So um, one last question before I let you go. Um, do you think that, you know, most companies that are going to be bought by private equity, um, do they have any any sort of leverage at the table to say, listen, uh, we, we just don't want to pay you a management fee or a consulting fee or anytime we, we refinance a loan? I mean, do they have any sort of recourse or is this just basically going forward the state of business for a lot of these companies? Well... You know what? It's amazing. So there's a couple of things actually that are interesting to look at in light of Toys R Us. Um, I looked at the board construction from 2005 when the private equity firms first took ownership of the company and all but one executive on the board was from either Bain, KKR, or Vernado. Um, so it's not such a horrible thing. You know, the company 
and the board members are aligned in the sense that the private equity firms are the owners and they do well when the company does well. But you can see right there, there's obviously inherent conflicts in whether the board um, is, is structuring contracts that favor the private equity firms first or the company. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Lauren, for your time. All right, thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Olaf Storbeck and Lauren Silva Laughlin, and hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.